Yeah, we're continuing on. John chapter 4. Uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting little section we're going to do right here, these 12 verses. Um, the thing I like about how we're doing our, our preaching schedule, our preaching rotation, this is, the way I think, this is the way I think preaching should always be. I'm thankful that Pastor Paul's always been this way, uh, is that we, we believe in what we call expository preaching. We're, we're not uh, mainly not a topical, we don't typically teach in a topical manner. Like, oh, I want to teach about marriage. I want to teach about uh, raising your kids. I want to teach about this. We, we do that occasionally, every now and then, just for a few weeks here and there. But by and large, we, we pick a section of Scripture, usually a book of the Bible, and we just go through it. Whatever's there, we preach it. We don't skip because, oh, this might be a little bit inconvenient this week, or this might be harder to hear, this might not make sense. We just go through it. We look at the text, uh, we do our best to understand it, we expose the truth that's there, and we hope that that truth takes root in our hearts. So it's interesting today. Uh, this is a short little passage. It almost feels, um, it doesn't really feel out of place, it's just interesting in the, in the way that it goes. Uh, we've been talking about Jesus as he's traveled, uh, started his ministry uh, with John the Baptist into Jordan, then he goes, makes his way to Cana, where he performs the first sign, water into wine. Very familiar story we talked about several weeks ago. Uh, from there, he makes his way down to Jerusalem, where he cleanses the temple. Again, very familiar story. So he, Jesus is traveling a lot. Uh, we're going to see at the very beginning, he makes his way. He says he needs to get back to Galilee. This is what the very beginning of chapter 4. On his way back to Galilee, he makes his way through Samaria. That's where we get the whole story we've talked about the last few weeks with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Then he makes his way to Galilee just for these 12 verses. And next week when we pick up on chapter 5, he's on his way back down to Judea, Jerusalem, for a feast. So what is it in these 12 verses? It's just a quick, it's almost like a side trip. It's almost like he's got to make a stop. So let's take a look and see what it is today, what this stop's all about, okay? Starting in chapter 4, verse 43, after the two days, he, meaning Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Let's break this down just a bit. In fact, a lot of you, if, if you have in my ESV Bible does this, um, this is part of the previous section, these, these verses right here, 43 through 45. So let's take a look before we jump into the official, Jesus heals an official son, which is probably the heading in your scripture, in your Bible, something like that. Let's take a look at these three verses right here and see what we can learn from them. Okay, after the two days, what are we talking about? In the beginning of chapter four, as I mentioned, Jesus sets out from Judea, where he cleansed the temple, where he met with Nicodemus, he performed many signs, and he heads toward Galilee, right? He's going from south to north. On the way, he goes through Samaria. And as we talked about, a lot of Jews don't go through Samaria. It's kind of you just you don't want to go there. It's the wrong side of the tracks. It's the wrong part of town. Self-respecting Jews don't usually go through Samaria. They usually go around Samaria. But Jesus goes right through the middle of it. Okay, we learned how Jesus meets the Samaritan woman and how many Samaritans from the town of Sychar, where she lives, came to believe in Jesus and they came to even confess that he was the Savior of the world. Okay? If you'll remember, he's there. The whole, the whole scene where, uh, yeah, she's... Jesus tells her, bring your husband here, and I'll talk to him. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And she's like, you're right. You had five, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. So she goes to her townspeople and says, come and meet a man who told me everything about me. He knows all about me. Come meet him. So they come, and he stays for two days. While he's there for those two days, the people of Sychar are the first drawn to Jesus because of the sign that he performed and the woman's testimony, going to tell him all about it. He said, come meet a man who told me everything, knows all about me. 
But after spending two days with the people there, it's important to notice what we talked about last week. They believed in Jesus because of his word in verse 41, no longer because of the sign that he performed or because of the testimony that the woman gave. Their faith matured. They actually believed in what Jesus told them. Those were very important two days for this town. Two days is all it took. The sign that Jesus performed uh, revealed his power and it gained their attention, but their hearts were changed by the word that Jesus spoke, by his testimony about himself, and they no longer believed in Jesus because of what the woman said, because of what Jesus could do, but instead they believed in Jesus for who he is. They even confessed, they called him, you are the Savior of the world. That's a pretty important two days. So let's compare that. Let's compare these Samaritans, the half-breeds, the people that are looked down on. Let's compare uh, how they view Jesus with how the Galileans. Jesus is heading back home. Let's see how the Galileans viewed Jesus. Okay? Look at this passage again. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Okay? Familiar saying, uh, prophets never welcome in their hometown, no prophet has honor in his hometown. A lot of people who don't even, didn't grow up in church, never really read the Bible, they've heard that saying, right? It comes from Jesus. All right? Jesus is telling them, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So he comes to Galilee, and the Galileans welcomed him. But I thought a prophet had no honor in his hometown. Why are they welcoming him? Right? Kind of doesn't make sense. Um, one of the commentaries that I read spends a lot of ink and paper trying to figure this out. Uh, in fact, if you asked... There we go. If you ask 10 scholars, you're going to get 10 different opinions. No honor, but yet they welcomed him. What's he talking about here? How can these two things fit together? Here's what I believe it is. Jesus knows that he's heading back to Cana, okay? The site of his first sign, chapter 2, turning water into wine. Many of these people, as we read, they also saw the signs that Jesus was doing in Jerusalem, okay? So he's heading back to somewhere where he's got some notoriety, he's got some fame, because this is where he turned water into wine. All those people, if you weren't at that wedding, you at least know somebody that was at that wedding, Okay? And probably everybody's like, oh, yeah, I was there, even if they weren't there. They're probably telling people, yeah, yeah, I was there, I saw it. Maybe they just heard about it, but you know, you know how it goes. Yeah, I was there, I was there. So let's remember what Jesus thought about this. A lot of these people also, when Jesus does the water into wine in chapter 2 in Cana, then he heads back down to Jerusalem, and a lot of other people from Cana went as well. All right, remember what Jesus says about him back in chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man. He didn't need anybody to tell him what man was like. For he himself already knew what was in man. Jesus knows that many people are going to come to see him and they're going to welcome him. But he knows that their welcome will be based on what he can do, what signs he can show them. What's your next trick, Jesus? You turn water into wine. What are you going to do next? Let's follow him. It's going to be cool. Let's go see what he's got. But it's not based on who he is. He's famous there in Cana because of his miracles, not for being the Messiah. They welcome him. Yeah, Jesus, come, see what you can do. But they're not honoring him as Lord. They're not like the Samaritans who said, this is the Savior of the world. They just want to see what this guy can do. How easy would it have been for Jesus just to stay in Samaria and make that his ministry base? They loved him there. 
He didn't even have to do very much. He just met one woman and just said, yeah, I, did, I know a lot of things about you. No, no major sign, no major wonder, no major miracle, just kind of a small thing for one person. She goes, tells everybody, they come out, he stays there two days, and they confess he's the savior of the world. This is strategic. Jesus, just stay in Samaria. Look at what you've already got started there. You did that in two days. Think about what you can do in two months, two years. But that wasn't his plan. He says in the beginning of the chapter, I've got to go to Galilee. Let's see why he goes to Galilee. All right. We're going to find out who he meets when he gets to Galilee. I like these first four chapters of John. We see lots of encounters that Jesus has with different people. Chapter 1, we've got simple fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John leaving their nets behind to follow Jesus. We read later that these weren't educated men. They weren't skilled in theology, doctrine, debate. They were just, they were really good at fishing. And so Jesus says, put down your nets and follow me, and they go. In chapter 3, we see a prominent religious teacher, Nicodemus, goes to Jesus by night. Jesus tells him that you have to be born again. What? How can that happen? As we read a few weeks ago, uh, you're not just born of water, but of spirit. Chapter 4, last two weeks, the sinful Samaritan woman brings Jesus to her town. So Jesus is not, uh, he's not discriminating who he's going to meet with. Men, women, well-known, simple, uh, sinful. He's going to talk to everybody. Today, he's going to meet an official in the king's court, a nobleman. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay, two different towns. Jesus goes to Cana, but over in the town of Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Right? His father's desperate. He was a man of resources. He was a nobleman. He was wealthy. He had influence, power. Maybe had, he may have had a doctor on staff. Uh, if not, he knew somebody who had a doctor on staff. He could get whatever the medicine was of those days. He could get access to it. Maybe tried it all. He could have gone anywhere for help. He could taking his son anywhere. But in these last days, these last hours, his last shot, he knows his son's probably down to days. Hopefully he's still got days. He goes to Jesus. All right? He didn't send a servant. He made the 18-mile trip by himself. He's important. He could have sent a servant. He could have sent, he could have sent an army official. Hey, this Jesus guy, bring him back here whether he wants to come or not. But he didn't. He sent a servant. I mean, he didn't send a servant. Made the trip all by himself, 18 miles from Capernaum to Cana. He didn't pull rank. When he got there, he didn't say, Jesus, you know, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to order you to come down with me. He didn't say, hey, Jesus, I brought my bag of gold. What's it going to take for you to come to Capernaum with me? He didn't say, hey, Jesus, you've probably heard about me. Uh, it's... It's really good for a guy like me to owe a guy like you a favor. So why don't you come on? Come on down and I'll owe you one, and that's worth more than gold. He didn't do that. 
Didn't offer anything in return. Didn't really have anything to offer in return. He was desperate. Jesus was his last hope. He humbled himself and he begged Jesus, would you just come and heal my son? God often uses our kids to drive us to this kind of desperation. All the miracles that Jesus did. I'm, all week, last three or four days, I was trying to think, in all of Scripture, I'm trying to remember anybody that went to Jesus or went to one of the prophets for healing for one of their parents. I don't see it. Jesus, my grandpa, he's really sick. Could you come? Jesus, my mom, can you come? I don't see that. What do we see? Jesus is my kid. It's my son. It's my daughter. We see another instance. We may get to this in a minute in Capernaum. There's the daughter when he says, little girl, arise. God uses our kids to drive us to this kind of desperation. So Jesus says to this man, sounds cold. Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's begging him. He's following him around. It's not just he asks and Jesus says this and then he leaves. He stays with it. He's persistent. Sir, come down before my child dies. But Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. This is a great part of the story. Can you believe this? He's healed at the very moment when Jesus says, go, your son will live. And this official believed him. In verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And in verse 53, when he gets there and he sees what had happened, he sees that his son was healed at the exact hour when Jesus said he would be, he himself believed in all of his household. There's a lot of believing happening here. So let's take a look. It even mentions believing twice. Let's see if there's a difference in those two kinds of belief. All right. Jesus says, he, he tells the man, sounds harsh, sounds a little bit like a rebuke, but it's just the truth. And Jesus tells him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Signs and wonders are important. Signs and wonders were, um, Jesus did this everywhere. When he went to a village, when he went to a town, he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, and he healed the sick. And he cast out unclean spirits. Signs and wonders followed him everywhere. They were important. Several reasons that Jesus did these. He did it to show his authority over nature. When they're on the boat and the storm picks up, and he tells the winds and the waves, be calm, be still. He shows his authority over illness, as we see here. Shows his authority over even death. Most famously, we'll read in a few chapters, it could be months. John chapter 11, we talk about Lazarus. We'll get there, don't worry. Jesus also does these signs and wonders to show kindness and mercy to people who bear God's image. Uh, I would do anything for my kids, I love them. I know them.
JT got a haircut a couple days ago. I wanted to just draw a beard on him because we look, we look just alike. Um, it bears my image. It looks just like me. As creator, as almighty maker of heaven and earth, Jesus, being fully God, was there in the beginning, was there at the creation. And we were made in his image, made in God's image. He cares about us. He loves us. And he also does these signs and wonders to open hardened hearts and to plant the seed of belief. And we're seeing a little bit of all of this in today's passage. These signs and wonders, they're important. Jesus used them, and he used them well. He used them wisely, as only he could. Let's see the results of some of these. This is just from the last few weeks. You can look all over the New Testament. It talks about how signs and wonders brought people to Jesus, gave people at least the beginning, the seeds of true faith and true belief in Jesus. But let's just look at what we talked about in John. First, the first verse right here, John chapter 2, verse 11. This is right after Jesus is in Cana, back in Cana. The first time he was in Cana, he turns water into wine. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That means he revealed his glory. He let people see his true nature, and his disciples believed in him. We see later his disciples doubted. His disciples, so it was, it was a, this faith, this belief as a process, but this is where it sparked for his disciples. He went from being, man, this guy, he's a pretty wise teacher. He said, drop my nets and follow him. I'm going to do that. But it turns into, oh, he's more than that, just a teacher. Their faith is growing. Their belief is growing. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus comes to him. Respected teacher. Respected Jewish teacher. Professor, seminary professor. He's the, he's the, the published author of the day. Think about who we, think about your bookshelves, you know, the people who rarely have an unpublished thought. That's who Nicodemus was in those days. And he tells Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. Why? Because I heard you teach and it made a whole lot of sense. And when you said that, it was so logical and just really made sense. No, he says, because nobody can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We read just last week, last couple of weeks, many Samaritans from that town, Sychar, right? Samaritan woman. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So as simple as this small sign was, just telling this woman everything about her, and she goes to tell everybody else, even that, these signs and wonders, they're bringing people to Jesus. We're seeing the sparks, the beginning, uh, a root of faith burst up out of the ground. So these signs and wonders, they're important. There's an importance there. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's another side to this sword, another edge to it. There's a danger of these signs and wonders. The Samaritans, they recognized Jesus for who he truly was. It didn't take much. He stayed with them two days, and they went from being fascinated by what this woman had to say about Jesus. They went from a a fascination of who Jesus was and what he could do in just two days they confessed he was the savior of the world. But up to this point, the Galileans, they saw Jesus as a miracle worker. Maybe they even saw him as a prophet along the mold of John the Baptist or Elijah or Isaiah. But they didn't yet see him as the Messiah or their savior, the son of God. They didn't see him like that yet in Galilee. They were chasing the signs. They were following Jesus for what he could do, not who Jesus is. 
these next few passages in John, here's the danger in, in uh, signs and wonders. They're very important. They bring us to Jesus. They draw our attention. Not just us, but our friends and family who don't believe. They, Jesus draws attention to himself through signs and wonders. Can't make mistakes about that. <clears throat> but here's the danger. The next few passages in John, they mention other signs that Jesus did. Next week, start of chapter 5, there's a healing of a, of a paralytic by the waters in Jerusalem. Later on, we'll, in chapter 6, we'll talk about the feeding of the 5,000. We'll talk about Jesus walking on the water. Everybody knows about these signs and wonders. When you talk like, so there's, I don't know, so there, in my mind, this is just in my mind. You don't have to do this. But there's like miracle, lowercase m, miracle, and then there's capital M, miracle. Feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water. We think in our mind, those are miracles. Parting of the Red Sea, capital M, miracle. And we see a couple of these capital M, big time miracles in chapter 6. But towards the end of chapter 6, the signs that Jesus performs, they start to slow down. It's like the water spigot slowly turning off. We're seeing fewer and fewer signs and wonders that Jesus is doing. His teaching is getting more complex. I don't, I don't, want, to spoiler, I don't want to spoil anything, but we talk about it later. It gets, it gets tough. It gets tricky. Like, Jesus, I don't know what you mean by that. Can you just do the wine thing again? That I, can I just get some bread? I know what that means, but I'm not sure what you're talking about. And without these accompanying signs, people leave Jesus in droves. His teaching is too hard, they say. Who can handle it? Who can understand it? Some questions for us. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we follow him for who he is? Or are we just trying to see what he can do for us? Is he truly sovereign over us? Or is somebody who's just useful to us? We always ask that question. We've talked about it for years here. This useful God versus a sovereign God. Everybody would say, of course, he's sovereign. We don't see him as useful. But we kind of do even if we say we don't. Our love for Jesus runs a little bit hotter when things are going our way. When things are tough, we know in our head, he's, yeah, he's sovereign, but boy, he feels distant, right? Even though we never say it, we still do. Let's look at the example of this official, this man who came to Jesus. Let's see how it played out in his life, okay? <clears throat> the official's faith, it starts as a very small spark. His son was ill at the point of death. He knows that there's a guy. He's, uh, maybe he was in Jerusalem when Jesus did the signs, but surely he heard about what happened in Cana at the wedding. It's just 18 miles away. Like I said, everybody says that they were there. It's like Kobe Bryant's last game when he scored 60. Like 200,000 people say they were there. Staples Center only holds like 20,000. But everybody, oh, I was there, I was there. So this guy, he, he heard about it, whether he was there or not. Okay, his son's ill at the point of death, and he knows there's a guy who was here before, and he turned water into wine. He's my best bet. He's the best hope I got. Just like all faith is a gift from God, though, even his son's affliction was God's mercy toward him. This quote, We read that anxiety about a son led this nobleman to Christ in order to obtain help in time of need. Once brought into Christ's company, he learned a lesson of priceless value. In the end, he believed in his whole house. All this, be it remembered, hinged upon the son's sickness. This is important. We can't lose it. 
If the nobleman's son had never been ill, his father might have lived and died in his sins. Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater one. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Thousands at the last day will testify with David and the nobleman before us, it is good for me that I've been afflicted. Our Lord here healed two persons at one time by the same words. He brought the nobleman's mind to faith, and he delivered the body of the young man from disease. It's hard. It's painful. I don't want to think about it like that. I want to think that these afflictions, it's easier for me. It's easier for me to be on good terms with God when I find out that if, if I think, if I had the idea that the bad things that are happening to me, illness in my family, serious illness in my family, problems with my kids, problems at work, problems in my marriage, the bad things. It's easier for me to be on good terms with God if I think to myself, God is just as surprised by this as I am. He wishes he could do something about it too. It's easier for me to relate to him. But that doesn't, that's not the sovereign God that I know. These things don't catch him by surprise. He could fix it if he wanted to. Like that. That's harder for me. Because the question becomes, well, then why don't you? Losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. I have to believe that if God is sovereign, if he knows, not only does he know all things well, he can do all things. If I truly believe that, if I truly believe that God doesn't do things because they're good, but things are good because God does them. God doesn't have to align himself under this universal paradigm of right and wrong. He is the universal paradigm of right and wrong. Whatever he does is good and right because he does it. If I really believe that, and I really believe that he knows everything, and that he's all-powerful and can do whatever he sees fit to do, and whatever he does is good, if, if those are true, then the logical conclusion I have to come to is that, I've said this before, if we could see things from God's perspective, perfectly from his point of view, if we could see things exactly the way that he sees them, then every single thing that has happened in our lives, good or bad, difficult, hard, gut-wrenching, terrifying. These are things that we would have chosen for ourselves if we had the choice. It's God's mercy that brings us this affliction. So having heard of the signs that Jesus did this man, he has a spark of hope that causes him to cry out to Jesus for help. He's a noble man. He doesn't have to beg for anything. If he wants it, he gets it. But here he is, following Jesus around, following this healer. This Maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's a miracle worker, but I, I'm, I know he can do this. So he believes in what Jesus can do. It's this beginning spark, this, like in, the, in, the, in, the, in a garden. It's just the shoot coming up out of the ground. 
This official, he views Jesus the same way that the rest of the Galileans did when they welcomed him. They did not see him as the Messiah like the Samaritans did, but he saw him maybe just like a prophet, somebody who could work these miracles. And look what, look what the official says to him. Even after Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Well, the official says, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. That spark, that hope that Jesus could help him, it starts to grow. Jesus doesn't offer the man a sign. Jesus doesn't say, go, your son will live. And as proof, let me turn this water into wine. That will remind you that I can do what I say I can do. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, let me go with you. He doesn't offer him any kind of guarantee. He doesn't write him a receipt. Here, take it back, bring it back if it doesn't work. He doesn't do that. He says, go. Your son's going to live. He just offers him a promise. No sign, just a promise. The official, he believes what Jesus is telling him, and he leaves on his way home. Something radical happened inside that man that is the reverse of a very common phrase in our world, in our world today. Seeing is believing. In that nobleman's life, believing was seeing. Even though there were 18 miles between them in his mind's eye, he saw his little boy well and healthy again. He believed that Jesus would do this. He knew Jesus could. That was the spark of hope. And then when Jesus says that he would, he believed him. Hebrews, we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He said he will do it. That is enough for me. All these died in faith, we read in the well-known chapter of Hebrews, the hall of, hall of faith. It's talking about the patriarchs. It's talking about Abraham in this first section. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Particularly with Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, a great people. His name is Abram, which means exalted father. Wow, exalted father. How many kids do you have? Zero. Later, he has two children. God changes his name to Abraham, father of many nations. Wow, how many kids do you have now? Well, two. But Abraham believes this. It says that God counted that as righteousness because he believed him. He saw it even though it wasn't there. First thing, this root, this nobleman, he heard of the signs that Jesus did. He has this spark of hope, causes him to cry out. He believes in what Jesus can do. He trusts Jesus without needing a sign. And he goes home in peace, believing that his son would be healed. He believes that what Jesus says is true. He believes in Jesus' power. He believes in Jesus' authority, Jesus' ability. And now he believes what Jesus says. Let's look at where it goes from there. It gets even deeper. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, the servants, the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah, Judea into Galilee. Okay. Some scholars point this out. We don't know for sure. I think the idea behind it is accurate, though. So I'll share this with you. 1 p.m. is when this man meets Jesus. Would you come down, Jesus? 
Okay? Again, they're always saying, will you come up, will you come down? They're not saying north, south, east, and west. Why? Capernaum, where the nobleman's from, is down right on the Sea of Galilee, low. The Sea of Galilee is like a few hundred feet below sea level. So you go to the Sea of Galilee, you're going down to it from wherever you are. Cana's up in the hills a little bit. Will you come down? Right? So this man goes up to Cana, 18 miles. Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So if I'm the dad, I don't know. It's 18 miles, and it's all downhill. I could probably get there that day, especially if I'm really pretty excited to see what's happening with my boy. And he's a nobleman. He's probably got a horse, camel, something. I don't know. But he doesn't get there till the next day. He even gets more than 24 hours later. So I don't know. It's almost like he knew what Jesus was going to do, so he didn't feel like he had to hurry up and get home and make sure. I don't know. There's a confidence there. He said he's going to do it. Okay, he's going to do it. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he had to walk the whole way. Maybe it rained. I don't know. He doesn't get there till the next day. And he finds out that his servant was healed at exactly the hour Jesus said his son would live. And he himself believed in all his household. There's that word again. Not just him, but his household. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea into Galilee. We know the first two. This man believes in what Jesus can do, what Jesus is able to do. It's a spark of hope. Then he believes that what Jesus says is true. It's a maturing belief. It's a trust. Okay, I trust it. I trust what you say. I'm going to go home. But finally, he and his whole household, he believes in who Jesus is in a similar way like the Samaritans did, the Savior of the world. After he sees it, after he sees it all come to pass, he possesses a true, mature belief, not just in what Jesus can do, but in who Jesus is. This is how we make use of signs and wonders. This is how we don't get stuck on uh, being fascinated by signs and wonders. This is how we know that we can still trust Jesus when things don't go our way. Not in what he does, but in who he is. How do we know that this man possessed true, maturing faith in Jesus and not just, you know, more, oh, well, he can do things. Here's why. If this official only saw Jesus as a prophet or a miracle worker, even when he headed home, even if he saw what happened, even if he saw his son was healed at that hour, if he just thought, wow, I really believe in Jesus, you know, that he's a good prophet. If that was his stance, he didn't believe, yeah, he's the son of God, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior of the world, he's Lord, he is who he says he is. If it's not that, if it's just, yep, he really is a prophet and he's a powerful one because he could do it from a distance. If that is this man's belief, his chief response would have been gratitude. He would have gone right back to Cana and he would have thanked Jesus. He would have said, oh, Jesus is such a great prophet. I can't, there's no way I could ever repay you for what you did. Let me you know, financially support you as you travel. Got to do something to offer my gratitude. What you did is amazing. I'm just so thankful. His chief response that we read was not gratitude. I'm sure he was grateful. But his chief response was belief. He knew Jesus had the authority to do the signs. He believed that Jesus, what Jesus promised him would happen. And then he had faith in who Jesus is. What about us? Is God useful? Or is God sovereign? Does our love for him run hot and cold based on how well he's performing? Do we call him in for annual performance reviews? 
Jesus, we need to talk about uh, how things went in last quarter. I asked for a lot and didn't get much. What happens to our faith when the signs dry up and all that we have are his promises? What happens when, really, it's just been a tough year. People got sick and they didn't get better. Can I believe him when he says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you? Is that enough for us? Jesus' penetrating words to that nobleman were not a rebuke, but the beginning of grace in his life. When he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It sounds harsh, but we don't see it as a rebuke. It's the beginning of God's grace in this man's life. It's very easy to hear what happened to the nobleman, but never apply it to ourselves. It'd be wonderful if the Holy Spirit who inspired this narrative would pen these words again in the fleshly tablets of our own hearts. From Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even if it all goes poorly, even if it all goes terrible, even if everything I've been praying for, everything that I've been asking, everything I've been hoping for, even if it's all a no, I'm sorry, but no. This sickness is going to end in death. I'm sorry, but you're going to lose your house. If it's that, can we still say, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation? That is faith. That is true, maturing, believing in Jesus kind of faith. It's hard, but these losses and these crosses, they, they point us to who Jesus is. And they're never wasted. Our pain is never wasted. It refines us. I think that was the whole point of this side trip to Galilee. On the way, wonderful things happen in Samaria. Jesus has this plan. He's got to go there. I think he has to go there for this man and for this man's son and for this household. This man's from Capernaum. We see later Jesus goes to Capernaum all the time. Good things happen because of this man's belief in Capernaum. Jesus goes back there several times. It's almost kind of his base of ministry when he goes to Galilee. This man asked Jesus, he's a, he's a Jew, he's a Galilean Jew, just like Jesus, and he says, sir, come to my house, my son will live. Later, Jesus goes back to Capernaum, and he has a Roman centurion come to him, not a Jew. And he comes to Jesus and says, not his son, but it's his servant. He says, master, my servant's dying. And Jesus offers. He says, let's go. And the man says, nope. I know what you can do. I heard about it from the other guy. I'm not worthy for you to even come into my house, but I know that you have authority because I know 
this story, this man's thinking. I'm a man under authority. I have people above me and I have people below me. And I know you have authority and all you got to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. So Jesus does and he says, I've never seen faith like this in Israel before. This is the same Capernaum where Jesus goes and uh, he goes to raise up Jairus' daughter. Like I was saying, when she's there and she dies, he says, goes into the house anyways and they laugh at Jesus and then he tells her little girl, arise. And she stands up and he says, give her something to eat. And on the way to see her, on the way to see this little girl, is when he's passing through the streets and there's the woman who's had the issue with bleeding for 12 years and she just reaches up and touches the hem of his garment. Great things happened in Capernaum. People began to... Lots of signs and wonders, but signs and wonders that weren't wasted. Signs and wonders where faith took root, true faith, not in what Jesus can do, but in who he is. We're going to do communion in just a moment. Just in closing, I want to encourage you. If you're at a point in your spiritual walk where you're finding yourself, okay, I know in my mind, in my brain, when I think about it, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, I can, I can trust him. I can accept both good and bad. If you're at a place in your mind where you know you can do that, but it's having trouble making the trip from your brain to your heart, it's like the longest 18-inch trip in the world, right? I can get it from here to here. If you're having trouble treasuring Jesus for Jesus and not just treasuring what he can do. I encourage you, I invite you during this time of communion today, tell him that. Ask for his help. Be a great time to spark that with him, to renew that with him, to confess to him that, yeah, Jesus, I've been thinking about what you can do for me and not who you are. Would you renew me? Would you draw me again? into this complete trust, complete worship of you, come what may. Can we as a community, as we uh, have a lot going on, as we venture into the unknown of mobile church, as we um, venture into the unknown of not being entirely sure where salt's going to meet, not being entirely sure. Um, we have a couple of uh, forms that we've got to fill out um, and so they were asking for your business address uh, for the church. And I'm like, mm, that's a really good question. I don't know what our business address is. Uh, as we enter a season where we have a lot of people who are hurting in our community, because they have family who are really ill, can we do this? Can we help one another? Can we see Jesus as the treasure? Don't love the gifts, but we love the giver. Let's make this our, our commitment. Let's pray. Our Father, you are good to us, so patient. You're gracious, slow to anger. You're rich in mercy and you're abounding in steadfast love. We have so many needs. We have so many uh, hurts, so much pain, so much doubt. You know the cry of our heart. Help us to come to you like this noble man came to Jesus and cry out and to beg. 
No one else, Jesus, can help me but you. So I beg you, would you help me? But help us above all to trust you, even when it seems like that's the hardest thing you're asking us to do. We know that when we pray for things, when we pray for outcomes, when we pray for healing for loved ones, when we pray for a new job, when we pray for our kids and their classes and their schools, we know that sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no. But we know that the one thing you never withhold from us is your mercy and your comfort, and your presence. So Lord, would you help us to treasure those, your mercy, your comfort, and your presence above all. Help us in this season. There's no way we can do it without your help. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it teaches us and shapes us. Pray all these things in the name of our treasure, our delight, our Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen.